Well, good morning and welcome to uh, week one of our Unity and Diversity Equipping class. Uh, for those of you who do not know who I am, my name is Ryan Troglin. I serve as one of the pastors uh, here at UBC. And uh, over the next nine weeks, uh, myself, Jeremy Muller, Chris Shaw, uh, we're going to be leading a study of unity and diversity uh, in the Bible and how it plays out in the life of the local church. Uh, but before we jump into our class today, I'd love to get a bit of a read uh, on this topic from, from you guys. Uh, so show of hands, how many of you would say diversity is important for the church? Something good for us to have. Okay, majority of hands going up. Think all the hands going up. Um, what about unity? Is, is unity important for the church? Okay, great. We're off to a really good start here. Everybody, everybody rose their hands, raised their hands. They said it was an important issue for the people of God. Okay, let's get a little bit harder. Why? Why are unity and diversity important topics for us to, to spend the next nine weeks considering? Uh, why come to this class? You could have gone to conversion. You could have gone to how to study the Bible. You could have gone to Colossians. Those are important things for the people of God to think about too. Why unity and diversity? Nick. Great. Good answer. Sean? Within the Trinity. So we've gone to creation, we've, go, we've gone to the doctrine of God, the mission of the church. Good stuff. Frank? Yeah, the world's going to know us by our love for one another, by our unity with one another. So as one of your pastors, uh, I think these are issues that the church can't afford uh, to ignore or get wrong. Uh, unity and diversity are two really big buzzwords uh, that we hear a lot about uh, today in culture and in the church. Uh, and unfortunately, what we see are, are many well-intentioned brothers and sisters in Christ bringing the world's ideas and assumptions about unity and diversity uh, into the church. I think far too often the church either tries to manufacture these things out of their own strength, or they co-opt them for, for something less than what God intends for us in his word. Um, so on all fronts, we are told we must care about unity and diversity. But why? 
I think that's, that's one of the critical questions we've got to be thinking about. Obviously, we all think unity and diversity is a good thing in the church. But how do we go about cultivating these things well? Uh, how do we cultivate these uh, in such a way that honors the Lord and honors one another? That's how I hope that this class helps us as a church. Not just thinking more biblically about unity and diversity in the church. I hope we do that. Um, but actually being more biblical in how we pursue and maintain unity and diversity in the church, just as Ephesians 4 commands, just as we, we thought about. There's a ton of talk, a ton of talk about unity and diversity in the church today, especially uh, in regards to ethnicity. Uh, and with that talk has come a lot of heat, a lot of heat, but not a lot of light. I hear a lot of anger uh, a lot of name-calling, a lot of labeling and mockery. But what I don't hear is a lot of humility, deference, gentleness, patience, understanding, bearing with one another in love. So I hope that this class in particular will help us as a church grow uh, in those, those areas. Chris, Jeremy, anything you guys want to add? Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks. Uh, I think one of the common denominators, the common things that you're hearing 
uh, is, is that this topic matters because at the end of the day, it says something about our corporate witness as a church. Um, when God saves a person, uh, he saves them as an individual, yes, but, but then what does he do? He brings them into a community. Um, salvation is never an isolated act, right? It's directly vertical uh, between you and God, first and foremost. But that vertical reconciliation, uh, it immediately puts us in the context of other Christians because Christians congregate together into churches. So right kind of at the nerve center of this conversation is our corporate identity, our relationship with one another as the new people of God. And where does this corporate Where does this corporate witness come from? Well, it comes from the gospel. So when you become a Christian, uh, you undergo a complete identity shift. Um, God's work of grace through the gospel uh, makes you and I new creations, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17. It makes us part of God's family, Galatians 4.5. It unites us to Christ, Romans 6, uh, 1-8, which means that being a Christian Uh, is more fundamental, it's more fundamental to your identity than your family, your ethnicity, your job, your nationality, your sexuality, your personality, your marital status, or any any other way that this world uh, will define us. So your identity is now rooted as a Christian, first and foremost, in the gospel. And so now as a Christian, the unity that that you share with every other Christian is more profound than any other conceivable bond than we can imagine. Uh, That means that wherever the gospel exists, diversity should exist too. Wherever the gospel exists, diversity should exist too, because all types of people can be saved. Diversity is a natural outgrowth of the gospel. And so diversity is probably more important Uh, and at the same time less important than you and I may have originally thought. It's more important because when people uh, with no worldly bonds or connections love each other sacrificially in the church, it's proof that something supernatural is going on. That's what's happening in John 17 that Frank referred to earlier. Um, Jesus says this in John um, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So far from being some kind of extra but non-essential feature like leather seats in a car, um, diversity and unity in the church should be one of uh, the most obviously supernatural characteristics of a local church. But at the same time, as important as uh, these things are, it's less important than you thought because unity and diversity is not uh, an end of itself. And it's easy for people, or for whole churches for that matter, uh, to make it such. But you can be a diverse church and yet an unhealthy church with no unity, love, or gospel. And that kind of unity, uh, that kind of unity and diversity, that's, um, that's just not compelling to the world. Um, a church that's divi- di- diverse on paper but not united around um, the supernatural work of, of Christ, it compels no one. Um, that, that kind of diversity, it won't last and it won't shock the world. It has an expiration date. And so diversity in a local church matters very little in and of itself, but it matters a ton 
to the extent that it reflects a deeper reality uh, of gospel unity that's believed and lived out uh, by the people within that church. But where does this unity and diversity come from? Why does it matter to God? Well, that's what we're going to consider this morning. Uh, and we're going to start by tracing the theme of unity and diversity through Scripture from beginning to end. Um, and then we're going to talk about reasons that we care about these things uh, that may differ from actually the reasons God cares about them. Um, and then finally, we're going to try to nail down what those reasons are that God cares uh, about unity and diversity. If you didn't get a handout, um, make sure you get one of those. We're going to be using it. Uh, throughout the class. There's a little exercise at the end that we're going to do as well on it, so make sure you got one of those. Um, we're going to start by looking at, at uh, that second point on your handout, unity and diversity in the Bible. Before we jump into that, let me pray, and then we'll start. Father, we praise you uh, that your word is not silent on this issue, uh, that you are a God who, who has spoken to us, uh, who has uh, given us your word, uh, and who will guide us by it. And so, Father, we pray for our next, uh, our next hour together. We pray that uh, as we open your word, that it would instruct us, it would correct us, it would rebuke us and exhort us and encourage us, that it would challenge and convict us in, in ways that we need to be challenged and convicted. And in and, and all things, Father, we pray that we would submit uh, with glad hearts and joyful hearts and obedient hearts uh, to all that you've revealed to us in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, the story of community in the Bible begins with God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Right. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. But God didn't just stop at the one man, right? Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God... God makes two, man and, and woman. And then, and then we read later in chapter 2 where this woman is to be a helper fit for the man. Uh, the woman corresponded and complimented him. Uh, she was different from him. And yet, in verse 24 of chapter 2, she would be one flesh with him. So two distinct kinds of people, and yet they're united as one. So man and woman, right here in creation, they don't simply point us to God because of how they represent Christ's love for the church in Ephesians 5. That's absolutely true. Um, but they also image God in their diversity, in their unity, in, in creation. So from the very, very beginning of man's existence, it's community. Even this community of two uh, that images God, who... And his very essence and nature actually exists in community, too. This is what Sean uh, pointed out just a second ago. God, who is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he functions in perfect harmony as one God, right? Divinely diverse, yet totally unified as the Godhead. So our communal life with one another is, is grounded in the triune God's communal life. Fragmentation, uh, division and disunity are, are all a part of the human story, but they're not a part of God's story. Right? There is no conflict whatsoever in the Trinity. The three persons of the Godhead, of, they're, they're not looking around at one another going, hey, why can't we all just get along here? Right? That's a question that we're asking uh, of ourselves, but that's never a question that God's asked of himself. Uh, the three persons though distinct, are perfectly united, 
perfectly co-equals, perfectly eternal. They support one another, assist one another, promote one another. God is the apex of unity and diversity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, in eternity. Existent, mutually glorifying, loving, honoring, supportive, diverse community. That's the Godhead. And it's that, it's that kind of unity and diversity that Genesis 1 says you and I get to display as image bearers of God. Which means that our lives are loaded absolutely loaded with meaning and great responsibility. Meaning because every person, regardless of where or to whom you were born, uh, is created in the image of God, and therefore they have, uh, they have value. And then the responsibility comes uh, from, from our call to reflect our creator God uh, as image bearers to the very world uh, who seeks to deny his existence. So the world um, kind of shoves off that responsibility by trying to achieve, achieve it without God. Right? This is essentially what uh, John Lennon's song Imagine uh, asks us to imagine. Right? Uh, when he's saying about no heaven above or hell below us, uh, just all the people sharing all the world living for today. I'm not going to sing that for you, but I trust you know that song. Um, if Guy or Ryan Berry here, were here, maybe I'd ask them to do it. Um, but, but to really imagine that kind of unity, true unity, we have to know God as he revealed himself to be. And, and to know that, we have to be brought into the experience of that triune God through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. This is part of what it means uh, to be made in the image of God and the responsibility that we have to go and display and image him to others. And this is just the beginning. Right, this is just the beginning of the story. Later in Genesis 12, God's going to call Abraham out of Ur and tells him that his plan will be to, to create an entire nation from his descendants. Uh, and these descendants would be the Jews. But it's ironic that the first Jew, Abraham, was actually a Gentile. That's pretty ironic. And, then sh- and sure enough, in Exodus chapter 4, 23, when God creates this nation, Israel, he calls them my son, right? So Exodus 4.23, my son. God, God speaks to Pharaoh and he says, let my son go that he may serve me. Now that's interesting. Why would God use the phrase my son? Why would he call the nation his son? Because sons look like their dads. They image their fathers. That's what the nation of Israel was supposed to do. So the task to image the triune God now falls to an entire nation, a corporate people, of all sorts of different kinds of people. There's this corporate representation that started uh, in the garden and is now uh, happening through the nation of Israel. But Israel doesn't image their father very well, do they? They don't image God very well. So in Ezekiel 36, God explains that he threw them out of the land because instead of proclaiming his name, they defamed it. And in a sense, what we get is a bigger repeat of what happened in the garden uh, between Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam and Eve, whom God created as a united, diverse community of two who bore God's image, they defamed that image, and then they were thrown out of the garden. They didn't do the job that God had given them to do, and now hundreds of years later, 
uh, with hundreds of thousands of descendants, that same image-bearing problem exists and just gets recapitulated. Uh, It's a problem that gets repeated uh, throughout the whole Old Testament. But then who shows up on the scene? Jesus, one new man. As the Gospel of Matthew opens, Jesus comes out of Egypt. In Matthew 2.15, what do we see God calling Jesus? Out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus is called out of Egypt and into the desert just like Israel was. Then he's tempted in the desert just like Israel was. And yet, unlike Israel, unlike that son, Jesus perfectly trusts the word of his father. And so at his baptism, what does God the Father say? Right, Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So here we have Jesus. He is the son who perfectly images the father. This is why Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So finally, finally, after the whole Old Testament, we have one who fulfills God's mandate at creation to bear God's image perfectly. But he's only one man, right? He's only one man, isn't he? And so God's plan continues. Through Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus inaugurates the church. We get the church. His followers now have a special job to reveal him to the world. Uh, And as we quoted from John 13 earlier, one of the most powerful ways uh, that we do that is through our love and our unity for one another. Now, we saw that the diversity of God's plan um, has expanded um, from a diversity of two in Genesis 1, right? That's where we started, Adam and Eve. Then it goes to the nation of, uh, of Israel and the Exodus. So what do we see in the Great Commission? Right, that Nick referred to with, uh, earlier, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we see that the church will include disciples from all nations, all nations. Right, this is what we've seen time and time again as Brad led us through uh, the book of, of Isaiah. Isaiah 40, 49, verse 6, it is, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I, God, will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So that's exactly what we're going to see as we move out of the Gospels and into the book of Acts uh, as the Gentiles, Cornelius and his family, enter what's at the time a Jewish church, a Jewish Christian church in Acts 10. And then we see God's intention uh, for a diverse people united in Jesus laid out further in in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, He describes the gospel uh, in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 10. And his first implication there of the gospel, uh, right after he lays out this glorious explanation of the gospel in in chapter 2, verse 11, is that Gentiles... Uh, are to be members of God's new family just like the Jews, right? just like Israel. And then we get chapter 2, verse 13 of Ephesians. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall 
of hostility. Okay, so why is this diversity, why is this diversity such a big deal to Paul here in Ephesians? Because Jews and Gentiles had been enemies for centuries, theologically, politically, ethnically. It's, it is really hard to imagine two groups of, of people with less in common or more at, uh, more at odds with one another. But when Paul describes their unity, he reaches for the most committed bonds that we know of, ethnicity and family. And he calls the Jews and the Gentiles, these two different historically opposed people groups, what does he call them? One new humanity, verse 15. One new household, verse 19. In Christ, all those, those walls of division just come crumbling down. Humanly, the uniting of those kinds of, of two diverse peoples is impossible. It, it does not make sense. It doesn't happen. But when the power of the gospel shows up, different story. Totally different story. And why does God do this? Why does he create unity between Jew and Gentile in the local church? Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places. So in other words, God's going about this work to show off his glory so that his people might image God. Through its astonishing diversity and this supernatural unity that takes place, the church images, we now image God in a way that Adam and Eve could not, failed to, and in a a way that Israel, the nation, could not do it either. And so when we get to Revelation, the end end of the beginning, um, what's the centerpiece? What's the centerpiece of God's glory in heaven that we find? It's Revelation 7-9. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you get all these different people with one song, one voice, in unison, praising the one risen Lord. So why does God care about unity and diversity in the local church? Because it's how he intends to show off his glory to the universe. He is the most beautiful, most satisfying, most delightful being in all of existence. He's the source and definition of those words. He alone is worthy of all of those superlatives. And the most loving thing that he can do, the highest good that he can accomplish, is to let his creation know him, to see his glory. How's that going to happen? Through the Rocky Mountains? The amazing design of the human body, the Milky Way, brilliant ideas. Yeah, but only a little. Only a little bit through that. Much more than that, way more than that, it's going to happen through churches like UBC, churches like us. And in particular, through the unity and the diversity 
that shows off the supernatural bond of commonality in Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. So God cares. God cares about unity and diversity because it's one of the chief means that he uses to convince unbelievers, to convince the world that he is real and worthy of our worship. That's why these things matter to God, because it's how we image the triune God of the universe. And that's why unity and diversity should matter to us as his people, as this little local church right here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Any questions on any of that before we get into our third point? Yeah, Zach. Yeah, so we still display the image of God. The the task, the meaning, the responsibility that we talked about, the value, um, all of that's still inherent in us. But now we are also born in Adam, meaning that we're also now born into sin. And so we're that's that's a part of our identity now too. That doesn't that doesn't. destroy or invalidate the image of God that's, that now still exists in all of us, but it's, it's still there. And that's why Christ comes and he's coming to redeem and to restore uh, that image of God to its fullest, uh, which is what we find happening when we're in Revelation and we're enjoying the, full, the fullness of the Godhead just as Adam and Eve were supposed to. Yeah. So it's not like it, it completely deletes the image of God. Other questions? Dan? Yeah, little C. Yeah. Not big not big C. Yeah. 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 What for you guys, how does this deepen your understanding about the church? and God's intentions for us. How does this, how does this kind of deepen your understanding of, the, of, of who we are? I would love to hear from one or two of you. Go ahead, Sarah.
to yeah. be Which we're going to think about today in Matthew 1, right, in the sermon passage. Look at that genealogy. Yeah. Talk about diversity. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I think God has much broader categories of diversity than we give him credit for, uh, which is what I'm I'm really looking forward to in this class is just broadening those categories uh, for us. And he's had those categories since the very beginning. Yeah, Caleb. And yet, as the people of God, the Spirit now lives inside of us, and we, in the local church, can, uh, we're not going to be the ones who manufacture or create that unity and diversity, but now that like, we're, we're commanded to be eager to maintain it, that unity and diversity that the Spirit creates in us. Uh, it may not, may not be as full or as complete as it will be in the new heavens or the new earth, but that also doesn't nullify uh, the responsibility that we have right now as a church to be eager. Like Ephesians 4 uses the word eager, uh, commands us to be eager to work, uh, to maintain that unity uh, that the gospel creates. It's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, depending on where God and his providence and by his grace has situated a local church, it may, it may look, uh, you may find more diversity um, in the pew or just within the people, um, but that's also just God's providence and God's grace at work uh, and where he situates his people. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a second. Okay, so point number three, why we care about unity and diversity. So we've seen that 
that the Bible and God obviously cares about unity and diversity. Um, so that's, it's not, not, that's not the problem. The problem is that we often care about unity and diversity for lesser reasons than God does, for subpar reasons than God. Uh, and sometimes that works out okay, like Paul telling the Philippians about those who preach Christ from mixed motives. But sometimes uh, this can be a disaster. So what are those lesser reasons we tend to value uh, unity and diversity for? Well, number one, I think, um, I think one of the subpar reasons that we tend to put a high premium on unity in the local church is because unity just means that we're going to have less conflict. Unity means we have less conflict because we are conflict-averse people. Um, and because we're conflict-averse people, we put a high premium on unity. Um, but this can result in, a, uh, in us kind of being afraid to rock the boat when necessary. Uh, it can lead to a lot of fear of man. Um, but it's unity around the gospel. We've got to remember that it's unity around the gospel, that, which means that um, when the object of our unity, the gospel itself, is at risk of compromise, um, we're willing to forgo um, kind of unity on the surface in order to protect the thing that really unifies us. Uh, as one who often gets to teach the word publicly here, as one of your pastors, um, I often feel this temptation. Right? It's a lot easier for me just to kind of avoid the difficult stuff um, so that I can maintain the unity of the church, not enter into those hard conversations not pray in a pastoral prayer, perhaps, or on a Sunday night about a difficult issue that may be divisive uh, among, among, among members of the church. So it's a temptation uh, for those of us um, who stand up here and teach the word publicly, but also a temptation for all of us uh, when we're just having normal conversations with, with one another to avoid um, some of those difficult, um, potentially divisive, fire, like explosive uh, issues. Um, but that's a subpar reason, right, to avoid, um, to avoid our unity around the gospel. Second thing, unity looks good to the world. This is another subpar reason that we value unity. Unity looks good to the world. Um, this is good in a, in a John 13, 35 sense, um, but if we're not careful, uh, we'll work to maintain our unity in order to merely win or keep uh, the world's approval or acceptance of us. Um, but this can lead to the church being afraid to do what's unpopular in the eyes of the world. So that's unity. Some, some sub, subpar reasons to value diversity in the local church. One, diversity means anyone from any background can feel comfortable here. Though our identities are really important, uh, we can tend to idolize them. But the whole point of the local church is that our identities, those things outside of Christ, uh, they're all secondary. In fact, they're very secondary to our identity in Christ. Everything else that defines us now takes a back seat to who we are in Christ. They don't go away, right? We don't completely ignore them, but they are, they're not in the driver's seat of who we are anymore. Our identity now entirely uh, gets reoriented around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Second reason that we tend to, to put a value on diversity in the local church, it makes our church look good to outsiders. It just 
we, we know that the, the world values this stuff too, so we need to value it. Uh, and we can be prideful about something that God has built and be tempted to try and manufacture or create it or build it ourselves. Uh, in the same way that unity will look good to the world, diversity also looks good to the world. Uh, and we can be motivated toward building uh, a kind of diversity in the church because we know that the world values it. Uh, and this can lead to a kind of discontentedness or frustration uh, with the level of diversity that God has given uh, to a church. Uh, but it's a real danger to simply want to be a diverse church because we know that it looks good in the eyes of the world. Right? We don't want the, world to, the world's importance or value on diversity to motivate our diversity. One thing we ought to be praying for uh, at UBC is the difference between human-built and God-built unity and diversity. The difference between human-built and God-built unity and diversity. Our goal as a church is God-built, God-glorifying unity and diversity. The grand purpose of God for the local church only works when our uni unity and diversity are obviously not the result of our hard work or ability. Obviously not the hard work of our ability, our, of our hard work and ability. There's something beneath the surface that holds us together as a church. Someone who produces in us something far better than we could ever imagine. So the goal of our unity and diversity is to point to the reality and the power of Christ at work in us through his spirit. Now, God, God is building unity uh, in his people through Christ. He's the thing that we rally around. Um, so it's not just unity and diversity uh, for unity and diversity's sake that we're concerned about, that we're after. Um, those things aren't virtuous in and of themselves. Uh, after all, hell is a very diverse place too, right? But it's God-glorifying unity and diversity that we're after. That's, that's what we want. And thank God uh, that that's what he builds in his churches all the time, right? That's what God is, is always building in, in his people because the blood... The blood that unites us as family now in Christ runs deeper than anything uh, that could divide us. Runs deeper than anything that could divide us. We're going to talk much, much more about uh, this, this part in particular next week. All right, number four on your handout there. Number four, what kind of unity and diversity matters? Well, you might know that I have waited um, almost this entire class to actually define unity and diversity for us. Well, that's because uh, we really need to understand why it's important, uh, and especially why it's important to God, before we can actually figure out exactly what kind of unity matters and what kind of diversity matters. So let's start with unity. What kind of unity will accomplish all that we've talked about so far this morning? Well, it's interesting. I think it's one of the fascinating things that we, we, uh, we think about when we're thinking about unity is that when we hear calls for unity in the church, uh, it's often about organizational unity, often about organizational unity. People say, uh, if we just didn't have all these denominations, 
right? If, if Christians could all agree and, and work together, then more people would get saved. But that's not the kind of unity I think that the New Testament uh, is advocating. It's not, it's not what we see the New Testament promoting. So two kinds of unity we see the New Testament promote. One, we've already been hitting on it throughout this class. The unity we see in the New Testament is unity between true Christians who believe the gospel. Unity between true Christians who believe the gospel. There's a reason that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul refers to the gospel as that which is of second importance. First, just making sure you guys are with me. It's of first importance. It's not a secondary matter. It's a primary matter. The gospel is of first importance. So you lose a right understanding of the gospel, and you lose a right understanding of true biblical unity. There's nothing really for a church to unify around when the gospel gets lost. It's the sun uh, the gospel is the sun around which all the other planets in the Christian solar system spin. Which means that we, as the people of God, need to be discerning about who we unite with. Because not all organizations that call themselves Christian have a Christian understanding of the good news. We've got to be discerning people. We've got to know what the gospel is. It's one of the reasons I love as uh, one of the pastors here who gets to do member interviews that we ask you what the gospel is, right? Share the gospel with us um, because it, it's, help, it's helping us to become discerning people. And we simply can't brush uh, all, all that under the rug um, to, to just kind of brush uh, our disagreement on the gospel with other organizations that may call themselves Christians. Uh, that would be to deny the biblical gospel, this is, a, is a, this is an example of, a, of prizing obeying God over how unity might look to the world, right? One of those subpar reasons we talked about earlier. All right, secondly, the unity, the second kind of, of uh, unity we see the New Testament promote, the unity we see in the New Testament is primarily a unity within the local church and only secondarily between the universal church. It's only secondarily between the universal church. So all of those one another commands uh, in the New Testament that you hear us talk about so much uh, as a church, they get written to Christians in local churches, right? Real Christians with real differences in real churches. And it's unity in the context of the local church where unity is most difficult because the local church puts us in really close proximity to people who are different than us. And then, if that weren't enough, it actually calls us to do crazy things, like put up with one another's sins and annoyances and little picadillos. I love that word. And then it calls us to love one another in spite of all those differences that we bring to the table. So when the New Testament writes about unity, it mainly has in mind unity between people who are sharing life together in the local church. So what is the unity that matters? What's the unity that matters if 
we were going to have a working definition for this class? Well, unity is when we value our shared bond in Christ more than anything that might divide us. Biblical unity is when we value our shared bond in Christ more than anything that might divide us. That's our working, that's, that's I think, a, a good working definition for us to have. And that kind of unity, it shows up. It shows up, it kind of gets crunchy, flesh and blood, when we love, when we love the, and the love that we have for one another as true believers. And that love is what's going to confound the world. It's going to shock the world. It's going to surprise them. Because there's so much on the surface that we ought to be dividing over, and yet the gospel allows us to unite in spite of all those differences. That's unity. Diversity. Well, God's purposes should also lead us to think carefully about diversity. Sometimes, uh, oftentimes, diversity is merely a stand-in just for ethnic diversity. We hit on that a little bit earlier in the class. We usually evaluate the diversity of a, of a local church based on the number of colors we can count of people's skin in the pews. So I'm, if, if I did a straw poll in here, uh, I'm sure many of you would, would say that you came today expecting this to be primarily a class about ethnic diversity in the church. Because when we hear, when we think about unity and diversity, we, we almost immediately think about ethnic diversity. But is that all that we should care about? Is that all that we should care about if we have God's purposes in mind for a diversity? I don't think so. I think what we've seen as we've walked through the Bible, what we're going to see as we continue to walk through it over the next number of weeks, uh, is that God has much broader categories in mind for us. Uh, the Jew versus Gentile divide of the New Testament church was a divide of ethnicity, yes, but also of cultural background and religious upbringing and politics. And in the same way, we want to encourage unity uh, across any barrier that society has put up, uh, but which the gospel has torn down. So ethnicity is just, it's just one of a multitude of ways that God builds diversity in his people. So I'm going to give you a few categories to keep in mind, a few categories to keep in mind, but before I do that, uh, I want to make sure that this is more than just an ac- academic exercise for us, okay? Because unity and diversity is about real people and real places and real churches with real differences. So on your handout, on page, the bottom of page, on page three, Uh, Right there where it says number one, write down the names of 10 of your closest friends in the church. I want each of you to take about the next minute uh, to write down the names of 10 of your closest friends at UBC. 10 of your closest friends at UBC. I know it's hard to think of your 10 closest friendships, so just pick 10 uh, who are pretty close. And I'm going to give you about a minute to do that. So just even if you're new to the church, like you've just joined or you've only been here for a little while, Just write down the names of 10 people who you're beginning to get close to, that you're starting to know well. I'll give you a couple minutes to do that. And don't cheat. Don't try to make this like the most diverse list possible just because you're in unity and diversity. 
Be honest. This is between you and the Lord. All right, so you got your list. Now, I'm going to run through, at the bottom of page three, uh, you're going to see nine different categories of diversity. Uh, and as I run through those nine different categories, I want you to check off which of those friendships apply to at least one of those categories. So some of those categories you may have, you may have a lot more than one check. Um, all right, so do your friendships have, one, a diversity of age? Which of those 10 friends you listed are notably older or younger than you? If they're all kind of in your same age bracket, don't put a check there. All right, number two, diversity of political affiliation. Diversity of political affiliation. Three, diversity of educational background. Maybe you've got a college degree or a graduate degree. Anyone on your list without one or vice versa. Number four, diversity of income or social level. Number five, diversity of personality type. Can you see a diversity of personality types within the friendships uh, that you have in this church? Any of the people that you wrote down, extroverts? Uh, any of them introverts? Any of them socially smooth and savvy? Any of them socially awkward? 
like me. If you write down my name, you can put a check on that one. All right, number six, diversity of cultural background. Come from a different culture than you. Number seven, diversity of gender. If you put your husband or wife there, you can, I think you can put a check there. Uh, Number eight, diversity of where people grew up. So thinking nationality, different country. And then last category there, of course, different uh, diversity of ethnicity. Diversity of ethnicity. I think you could add a tenth there that I thought about after I I put this together. Uh, You could add stage of life there. That's, I think, another category of diversity. So maybe you put a college student down as one of your your good friends and you're no longer in college or young married or empty nester, widow, widower. So these are all categories that we need to keep in mind when we're we're thinking about diversity. Um, So the the Bible is much more broad when it comes to diversity than we give it credit for. Uh, In some settings... Some kinds of diversity uh, may not be possible given who lives there. Uh, This is what Frank was getting at uh, a moment ago when he was talking about the the church in Austria. Um, In other settings, some kinds of diversity may not be particularly remarkable um, given God's grace in that community. Uh, But in every setting, in every setting, the local church should be characterized by a unity that's highlighted by diversity. This is only possible because of the transcendent bond of faith in Jesus Christ that unites all people. So just as uh, as we close um, this morning, which of those categories of diversity do you think you have seen uh, by God's grace, especially here at UBC? What are some of those those categories that we just walked through? Um, What are some of those areas of diversity that you see here at UBC? Just blurt it out. Age. age. Definitely age. All right, we've got members who were born in 1925 and then others who were born like around 2015. It's a pretty big range of diversity. This is perhaps the most, di- this is without a doubt, actually, the most diverse church I've ever been a part of in terms of age. Others? Yeah, big range in our stage of life here. Any places where, you, uh, where we need to pray that God would do more work in our church? Evelyn? Cultural background and ethnicity, absolutely. Any others? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one too. What are what are ways that we can see, or you maybe you personally, as you just look at your list, um, what are ways that you see the diversity of your friendships? What are some ways that you can grow a diversity of friendships here? Any just practical steps that we could take in order to grow a diversity of friendships? Yeah, that. Yeah, one thing that we uh, we haven't done a ton of lately, but we used to do in our home, uh, is just we would invite people in different stages of life, different demographics of age, over to our house for dinner. So if we if we had a college student one week. Uh, over or a young married couple the next week we were going to try to be intentional about bringing inviting over an older couple empty nester no kids Uh, so we just tried to develop a range of different people we were having in our home showing hospitality to so that we could uh, diversify uh, our, our friendships Anything else, maybe just one other practical thing we could do from out there? Yeah, Evelyn? Yeah. Yep. But just, yeah, how we engage the world that is coming to our doorstep right across the street. Yeah, yeah Joy? People who are different than you and people you don't know. And just, it is going to be weird and it is going to be awkward. But I think we just need to be better about embracing the awkward and not letting that, not letting that uh, put, a, put a wall of division between us and someone we don't know, but just go, yeah, it's going to be weird to go up to this person who is clearly not in my same stage of life or it's going to be natural for me to talk to, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
Um, and that's, I think that's just evidence of that supernatural power of the gospel at work, a uh, really small, subtle way, but a beautiful way. And just imagine what, what the Lord can do in the culture of a church if we're more prone to go talk to the people that look different than us or are obviously different than us uh, instead of just going to the people who it's easy to talk to or we're familiar with already. I mean, that's, that's part of that culture shift that the Lord can bring in a church. Well, as we finish up our class today, uh, I, hope, I really hope you're encouraged by the way God has kind of just naturally baked unity and diversity into us as his redeemed people. Um, I mean, praise God that he doesn't just save one kind of person, right? Um, praise, praise God. We are a body of a thousand different parts. Each part is necessary, uh, and our job is to thank God for that diversity and to prayerfully be working toward unity uh, that the unity that God's given us through his spirit. Um, I want to encourage you guys as we head over to the service or um, even after the service today, as Joy just mentioned, um, I want to encourage you to spend some time today. Maybe it's the next few minutes as you're walking over or today after the service. Meet someone that you didn't know or someone that you don't know very well um, and maybe just share one thing as you're heading over to uh, the service today, one thing that you found helpful this morning and then ask them to do the same. Let me pray for us, and we'll head over. Father, we praise you for your word. Uh, we do praise you for uh, being a God who unifies his people uh, through diversity. We praise you for the gospel, uh, that it is able to break down uh, walls of hostility that once divided us. Um, God, we praise you for Jesus and for, uh, for his wonderful grace and for the work of the Spirit uh, in our lives. We pray that uh, you would use this class over these next number of weeks uh, to continue to grow us up in our unity and diversity and our love for one another. And we pray as we head now to the service that your word would do its work in our hearts, uh, that King Jesus would increase and we would decrease in every way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.